Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. This is Byron O'Neill for Comic Book Yeti, sitting down today with Isaac Mohajani to talk about his new post-apocalyptic fantasy series, Land of the Living Gods from Aftershop Comics. Thanks for joining me today, Isaac. Yeah, Byron. It's good to be here. Well, it's good to you're, you. you're a relative newcomer to the world of comics, so... Tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, before we jump into the story itself. Yeah, well, I've, it's, this is my first comic book, but I've been reading comics from, you know, as soon as I got my hands on some back in the day, which weren't that easy to come across in South Africa. But uh, I actually remember the first bit of creative material that I ever created was a comic book. You know, I drew one myself and I kind of bound it, bound it together and my brothers would read it and uh, it was a lot of fun, but my path kind of took me in a different direction. Um, I ended up in business, studied business and went into the, the corporate world, uh, but very quickly uh, kind of realized that I had to just chase that thing, that itch that I had from when I was a kid. And I transitioned into the film industry um, and started my company in 2009, a production company, and we've since produced a whole lot of television series, feature films, um, and a lot of exciting stuff there. We do animation as well as live action. Um, and yeah, I guess when you're in that space and you are speaking, you know, you have scripts out and people are reading material and things start circulating. Somehow I was connected with Aftershock um, and they really, really liked the voice that they read in some of my scripts. And we started talking about, you know, taking some of the world that I've been thinking about and putting them into comic book format, which is like a dream of mine. Um, and they were kind enough to take me and land of the living gods. And now here we are. Uh, one year later. It's been, it's been a great journey. So we see a lot of that dystopian scenario in the comics medium. It's kind of like bread and butter to it. Um, what drew me in was this one set in Africa. So what's the basic outline of the story? Okay, so it's set in the world. It's basically the end of the world, you know, where it's undeniable that there is no saving. Well, the, the people that are living in it are kind of aware of that. You know, they're aware that there is no turning the clock back. It's just an inevitability. And so kind of looking at the psychology of people that are living in those, under those kind of pressures. At the same time, uh, there's kind of been a spiritual reawakening. Um, and, and a lot of the belief systems that had died uh, thousands of years before 
have kind of come back and, and in a very real way. You know, people are actually physically seeing spirits manifest. There's a legend that, you know, the, the spirits of the first people that ever walked the earth will come back to see the last people walk the earth, kind of go into, you know, go into the night or whatever. And so this is what's happening. You know, there's, there's this spiritual reawakening that's kind of evidence-based because people can, everyone can see these ghosts that are walking around and witnessing and watching. And it's against this backdrop that this young girl named Naledi, who is an albino girl, um, and that that becomes important, uh, which I'll get into later. But she's kind of in hiding in in a dead Johannesburg, um, and as events unfold and she loses the people that are closer to her, she heads out on this mission, which she feels the ancestors have put her on to go find the gods, the living gods, this legend of gods that live on Earth with us somewhere hidden away that can save the planet. And so we're going to follow her on this journey. Um, so. At its core, it's a story about faith. You know, um, what we can see that guides us towards faith and what we can't see that actually makes us believe more than, you know, the tangible physical things. Um, yeah, that's, that's in a gist what it's about, but it unpacks a lot of different themes, you know, environmental themes, uh, spirituality, like I said, you know, uh, kind of um, the line between uh, the supernatural, the mystical, and even like occult beliefs, you know, where it goes into the darker side of our, our belief systems. And yeah, it's a, it's a cool and exciting world, I think. So tell me a little bit about um, the background then in South Africa of, of these traditional beliefs, because I'm understanding that a large percentage of the population is um, more Calvinistic um, Christianity, if you will. So yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, I mean, because it's a thing, I think in South Africa, and across a lot of Africa and you know a lot of countries that were like post-colonial countries, we there was there was a belief system that existed and that was basically supplanted when when the colonial when the colonial invaders came and did their thing. Um, and South Africa is no different, you know. Uh, but we had we and we still do have a rich traditional cultural belief system that exists alongside Christianity and Islam and Judaism, which is kind of, I think South Africa is actually very tolerant when it comes to religious beliefs, you know, so everybody kind of lives side by side, there's not really any tension. Um, but it's, it's something that's really starting to make a comeback, you know, the, the people reaching back to their, to their roots and rediscovering uh, our ancestral beliefs and what we believed before that was all taken away. And across, it's obviously different based on different regions in South Africa, but the idea of your ancestors being this higher power that that guides you, that communicates with you, that looks after you, is one of the strongest beliefs that, that the, the most prominent pre-colonial beliefs that we had, um, which is something that's explored in the book. You know, the idea that when I die, I go to a, another plane, but I'm constantly in contact with you, and I my purpose is to make sure that you live your fullest life, and there's a way to speak to your ancestors. This, people that are attuned to be able to speak to ancestors, um, and they're basically the highest authority below God. Uh, in the way that we look at things. So in the land of the living gods, that's basically the the, the type of spirituality that comes back, you know, okay. of how do we how do we connect to our ancestors? How do they speak to us? What does it mean to be part of a lineage that goes back to the beginning of time? Um, which is great, I think in potential because it's really you're playing with time in a very in a very uh, non-conventional way, right? Because you're ultimately speaking to people who lived in the past and who lived hundreds of thousands of years before you and the perspectives that they have and how they inform you now. And so to see that in a dystopian sci-fi cyberpunk future and connect those really old traditional belief systems and how they could meld with the technology that the people still have in these days, I thought created a really kind of clashing of old and new uh, 
something that's kind of contradictory, but at the same time kind of makes sense uh, and allowed us to really explore the idea of humanity in the in a way that was almost timeless, you know, that it's kind of, it does take place in the future, but it's, it's like the themes you're dealing with are timeless themes that, that mankind has dealt with from the beginning. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun way to kind of spotlight some of our belief systems that typically don't really get much uh, publicity or media or that kind of stuff, but within a genre that people love and that's, that's easy to jump into. Sure. Well, I was reading one of the other major influences of the project was your affection for the anima film Akira. So I, I really love the alt Akira inspired cover for that for that first issue. So how did yeah. Akira shape the story you wanted to tell? Yeah, I mean Akira is one of those. It's like I can't remember the first time I saw it because I was so young. I was way too young to watch it because I was traumatized. I think for a while <laughs> afterwards. But um, the I, I think the, the the thing that I loved about it was just you know back then. I mean anime is everywhere now. You know and manga is everywhere now. But back then, which is like the early nineties. 90- which is when I saw it, it was probably like 91 or 92. I think it was so hard and difficult to find any, any anime, um, especially in South Africa. And so when I watched it, I was just blown away by how they had looked at, again, uh, a genre that I'd seen before, you know, the, the sci-fi, the kind of Blade Runner-esque kind of future sci-fi world that I'd seen so many times, but I had never seen it done from a perspective of, of a Japanese storyteller. And what was so great about it was it wasn't just superficial. It wasn't just how the characters looked and the, the place that they lived, the language that they spoke. If you look at it, it's like, it goes all the way to the core of the storytelling and uh, the central beliefs of the characters and everything was so specific to that world. And so it was a big dream of mine from very early on, you know, not necessarily just to tell the land of the living gods, but to tell stories. I'm a big sci-fi fantasy, like, you know, fan. And I've always since then wanted to tell stories that did the same thing but from an African perspective, or more specifically from a South African perspective, where you, your, your, your founding tenants, the core pillars of the world that you're living with aren't Judeo-Christian Western tenants, but in our case are Southern African ancestral uh, traditional beliefs that whether it's sci-fi fantasy, whatever it is, it's kind of like it's baked in to the world and the characters and the, the viewpoints and everything that the characters exist in. And it gives it like a, a uniqueness, but it also gives it like a very kind of, like a beauty, you know? Um, and Akira to this day is like my favorite sci-fi film. And th- I mean, beyond just the masterful storytelling and the beauty, beauty of the animation and, and the manga, which I've read over and over again, it's just the, yeah, it's just, the, it's, it's such an inspiration for me to try and, do something in that kind of space. I'll never try to match it, but I'll try to do something in the space, you know. Well, as a storyteller, you have background as a director in film production. So how does that translate now to the comics medium? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I mean, it was nerve-wracking, I must say, uh, when I was waiting for people to tell me what they thought of the first issue, because, you know, I've I've really spent a lot of time honing how to tell a story through scripts, you know, in an episodic way, you know, how to write for, for a visual medium uh, like television or film. And it's a, it's, it's a thing that I had to practice a lot and really work on and really make sure that I get the time right and pacing and how much you can do. And so when I started writing a comic book, I realized that I'm starting not quite at ground zero, but very close to it because there's, it, there's, there's a lot of things you got to take into account beyond just a nice story, great characters, all of that kind of stuff. I think that's a given across any medium. But the way to present it in a way that hooks the reader and keeps them going from page to page, but then ultimately from issue to issue, um, and the constraints that it does give you as well, because 
because you have such a limited amount of time, especially something like the land of the living gods is such a big world. I mean, I think what we're seeing now is just like a sliver of the world that I'm hoping to have the privilege to be able to continue creating. So to find ways to be able to tell in 20, 22 pages, this really condensed story that gets across, establishes what the world is, who our characters are, uh, has things that are going to hook people, action, all, all of that kind of stuff. And only 22 pages is a massive challenge. Um, but it's also really, really fun. Um, and it's just been amazing to also see how quickly, you know, with film and television, things take years to get off the ground. You know, from the time that you conceive an idea to the point where somebody sitting and watching it can be up to seven years, eight years, 10 years, you know? Um, so you never really know how, what people think of your creation or your idea for almost a decade. And what's been so gratifying about comics is how quickly you can engage with the fans and with the readers. Um, you, can, you can start something, write it, get an awesome illustrator like we have here, a Brazilian illustrator named Santos, who, who I have to give so much credit to because I think his, his art really brings the book to life in a way that I hadn't imagined before. Um, but we can so quickly have people read the book and give us real honest opinions that aren't like, you know, network executives or producers or whatever. This is just like, this is the person you're writing the book for. And that's been amazing about comics. And it's a, yeah, I'm hoping to write a lot more um, if I have the chance to, because I just love that so much, you know. I want to delve into your storytelling a bit and give you more of an opportunity to like brag on your creative team here. So in reading through the first issue, issue the, the panel construction, the arrangement on the page, it's really expansive visually in this kind of unique way. It feels cinematic. Um, there's lots of breathing space, which I'm kind of not used to. If in the big DC Marvel world, everything feels much more compact. So it's very detailed without feeling too dense. How much direction did you give Santos with respect to the artwork? To be honest, not much. I have to say, I mean, I think what, what excited me about Santos, I've always had a belief because I work in animation a lot. And so I do work with a lot of illustrators and artists. And I've, I always find that like, if you can find a right fit for you, it makes everything so much easier because you can really lean on them to, to plus and really bring in, make a thing that you think is good and they'll turn it to great, you know, with, with their own sensibilities. And Santos is definitely that kind of artist. I, you know, I think being Brazilian, his sensibilities are very similar to mine as a South African. The, our, our cultures are very, very similar. Our people look very similar, you know, the same climate. It's, so the, the, the way he looked at the characters and he designed them from the beginning, before I even gave him the first bit of notes, was so close to what I had in my head, but also so much better. And I think that he has, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big, like, superhero fan. And, you know, I like to read those kind of books, but I don't think that that's the stories that I would tell. Like, I feel like there's, there's people that are better at me than telling those kind of classic comic book stories. So what was cool about Santos' style is that I felt like it had that kind of commercial sensibility, but with this real edge and this real kind of, um, it feels different and it's, it, it's, it's stylized, but not overly stylized. And there's so much to it, that, that so much detail that really makes it feel specific that I love. And the whole thing about like the, the, the panel construction and that, that, that feeling of sparseness, that was that Santos, you know? Um, and it's great for this book because it really creates a sense of desolation. And, you know, the world is, is a world that has a lot of room to breathe because there's so much less life in the real world. So when you're reading the book, you kind of feel that sense of emptiness that, that Naledi is surrounded by, you know? So I have to give him all of the props. You know, I think he's an amazing artist and he's just, he just knocks it out of the ballpark from the get. Like whenever he designs a character, my notes are so superficial because he's like, I don't know, from the beginning, he gets it so close to perfect that it's like, I feel like I'm just taking away from 
from what is creative, I guess it's really enough for that. <laughs> well, how did you find him? How did he get involved with the project? We were connected by Aftershock. Um, you know, they, they, they sent through a whole long um, list of artists for me to review and kind of see if somebody who has, you know, uh, the right kind of thing. And I think we're excited about Santos themselves. So they'd be looking for a project to work with him on. But yeah, as soon as I saw his stuff, I was like, yeah, this is the guy. You know, there were some really, really great artists uh, that, I, that I'd seen on their list. But I think Santos' stuff was just so, I don't know, it's just perfect. It's like, I, it's just when you just feel it in your gut that this is the right voice for this. Um, so yeah, it was a happy marriage that was created by Aftershock. And Dave Sharp was the same way. He came on with letters in the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He came through through the aftershock side, and yeah, it's been really. I don't know. Everybody's just been knocking it out the ballpark, you know. Puts a lot of pressure on me because <laughs> I feel like I had to live up to <laughs> what everybody else is doing. <laughs> well, I've been a gardener all my life. I've naturally gravitated towards Buyo as a character. So, what made you want to include an intelligent potted plant as a focal point in your narrative? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of without like you know going to spoilers. So. <laughs> Um, but it, it's, I, I really love the idea that like this girl who is completely alone, her, her companion is the plant. And it says something about her, like that she finds such a fulfilling relationship with the plant. Yes, it's intelligent and it can, it can move and it can react to things, but it's a plant, it doesn't speak. And the way she treats it, like it, 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 he is or it is her best friend. Um, and it, I thought that like was such a beautiful kind of, um, wait for us to love Naledi in the sense of seeing how she responds to plants, to a plant and how she would treat it like, 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 a, like a family member as opposed to just a thing, you know? And then also what, what Buyo symbolizes in a world that's dying, this, this plant that, that, that can grow where it shouldn't be able to grow, that can create different types of leaves and stuff at, at wool. It's, it, it's kind of the beginning of her journey and what she's going on. It's like kind of all symbolized through her relationship with this last sort of greenery, you know, in, a, in an otherwise dead world. So yeah, and, and it's just cute, I think, you know, <laughs> and, and, and not obvious. I think it's, it's, it's a, I've never seen a sidekick like that. So um, I always try to go for the not obvious choice and that was one of them. Well, those elements of traditional herbalism for healing purposes, were those based on fact or did you take some creative license? I mean, like the, the gardener background has to know, so. No, it's all, it's all, it's all based on fact. Um, that's another part of our traditional belief systems. So. You know, the guy in episode one that tells her about the mission that she needs to go on, um, we call those people Sangoma, which is a spiritual healer. And a spiritual healer is somebody who is connected to the ancestors and on their behalf and help you, guide you through your life. But another big part of what a Sangoma is, is a traditional healer. And using herbs and plants and natural substances to create medicines, and that's actually probably the, the biggest part of their, of, of their calling, you know, is, is learning how to create these these medicines um, out of out of uh, green things and herbs and roots and all of that kind of stuff, which is why he's asking her for buyos, some of buyos plants because he needs them for his medicines, you know. So it's also kind of in that it's like a calling back to the past as well, and that's how you know that kind of homeopathic, natural kind of way of healing we uh, we're using plants that grow in our gardens to heal each other as opposed to uh, chemicals and and synthetic medicines. You know, it's, it's, it's also kind of a nod to that. Okay. Well, when you were building this lavish world, where did you start? Like, I want to window into your world building here. So, because there's a lot going on. <laughs> it's interesting because I actually started at the end. 
so I kind of know I know how it ends, and it's like it's it, you know, and I guess I, I I'm really into high concept uh, ideas and worlds and and stuff. So it started with a high idea, which I can't go into without spoiling the book. But it started with that, and then kind of working backwards to being like, okay, cool. What is the story in the world? And what who are the characters that we're going to follow? And to be honest, that's the most difficult part. Uh, to me, coming up with a high concept idea is the easiest. But then finding like a compelling narrative within it and compelling characters that we're going to want to live with in that world is way way more difficult. And so I thought of the idea of the land of the living God. I think three or four years ago. And I'd been noodling on it for a very long time in terms of like, okay, but what is the way in? And that happens a lot with some of my, my ideas where I have something cool, but then I just put it away because it's like a concept and I just don't, I can't connect to it until I have like the characters and the, and the world more fleshed out. And um, yeah, and, and it, was, it was really naledi. I think once I went back and I really thought about this, I had, because, you know, I, uh, just to take a step back, I think one of, one of the tragedies of like things that used to happen in South Africa, but more uh, across the continent as well, was you know the the way uh, people with albinism were targeted uh, for ways that it was uh, often you know um, they were believed that they their body parts held. At first, it was either believed that they were witches or that they were like something evil or cursed, or it was believed that their body parts held some kind of magical power or whatever. So there's tons of stories of people being targeted and discriminated against and all of that. So in this world that had kind of gone back to a lot of like the traditional belief systems, I wanted to create where there's the good and the bad, you know, and some of those old, uh, more negative sides of it also came back. It wasn't just the positive uh, spiritual side, it was also some of the, 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 the negative superstitions. And so once I had thought of this girl who is living with albinism and has to kind of hide it, you know, I had to live in a in this place with a kind of a hood up all the time. She always has to have a hoodie because if people see it, then the wrong type of attraction might come to it. Once I thought of her and kind of her relationship with the mom and then her being kind of isolated, everything really kind of fell into place quickly after that. And and her being the lens through which we're going to travel through this world and her having this kind of calling um, and this really unshakable faith. She's kind of this moving rock in a world where everything has stopped moving, you know, everything is dying and she's this moving rock. And I guess that every time she hits something, every time she contacts people, every time she meets somebody, they start moving as well. She creates like a kinetic energy. And so through this journey, we're going to kind of see the impact that she has throughout the world of bringing people back to life who are really kind of, who had really kind of considered themselves dead. Well, the, the landscape media exposure to South Africa from America, right, from our culture, uh, is really pretty mi minimal in this U.S. market. I mean, maybe people have seen like a Bloomkamp film or they've heard of Die Antwoord, like myself. So what would you like to leave the reader of Land of the Living Gods with? It's an interesting question. Um, you know, it's interesting because I think, funnily enough, you know, I think when I'm creating a story like this, I'm, it's, it's not really... It's not really, I'm not really thinking about what a foreign reader is going to think reading it. Sure. I'm yeah. just, I'm just, I'm just telling, I'm just telling a story from my perspective and, and the things that I know are true. And so I think in that case, it would be like the same for anybody. You know, I think it's, it's really, um, I want to create something that makes us think about the role of, of, of believing in something, you know, believing in something bigger than yourself and how important that is to our thriving as a people, how important that is to us living and carrying on living. And when I say believing in something bigger than yourself, so it doesn't, it's not necessarily religious. It's not necessarily like believing in God or it can be, be believing in community. It can be believing in love. It can be believing in just something that is more than just you and how that, that is like a necessary thing for human beings to thrive 
And once we lose that, then, then we start kind of splintering, you know? And, and so by kind of creating a world that is in the most like dire circumstances possible, it's at its ugliest point. Through Naledi, we're gonna kind of see how she is able to ignite this belief in something bigger, in something more than individualism and more, in, more than survival. And in doing so, it will help us kind of reignite, you know, the thing that we need to be able to thrive as a people. And that's kind of the main thing that I think the story is about. It's about that. It's about that, that finding what, what faith means um, in a broader sense than it just being religious um, and what it means to humanity. And so that would be just for everyone, you know, um, whether you're South African reading it or whether you are in the U.S. So whether you're in Japan, whatever, I'm hoping that people take the same thing. I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's a great uh, <laughs> representation of South Africa because it's post-apocalyptic and it's dire and it's all that. So I, I would hate for people to read it and be like, "Oh wow, this is what South Africa is like." <laughs> this is like a worse version of a bad post-apocalyptic version of South Africa. It is really not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not a reflection of what life in Joburg is like. Okay. Well, if you were going to recommend something then that that does encapsulate the essence of South Africa, be it book or film, you know, what yeah. would that be? So you, you cut out for a second, but uh, sorry, my connection. Oh, no, no that. problem. So if you were going to recommend one thing that, that actually does encapsulate then more accurately the essence of South Africa, what would that be? Uh, it's tough. I mean, not to be like, I, I, I want to recommend something that we produced, like a film that we produced that you can catch on Netflix called Catching Feelings. Um, it's like a, it's a dramedy, like a dark dramedy about a, a guy in Johannesburg going through a midlife crisis. Um, it is very much from like a black middle upper class perspective. So South Africa has, there's a lot going on and you're not going to get the sense of the full, we'll get a very cool sense of Johannesburg in a way that isn't typically shown, you know, that is fun, it's vibey, um, but it's also nuanced and thoughtful and we deal with the real politics of what it's like to be in South Africa. So it's kind of a bit of a shout out to ourselves, I guess, but um, <laughs> check out Catching Feelings. Well, what else would you like to write as a storyteller? You know, would you enjoy working on established characters in comics? It's an interesting question. Um, it's intimidating. Nobody's going to say no, I, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd never say no. It is intimidating, I would say, because I think, you know, when you are doing your own thing, there's no restriction. Like, you know, you, I, there's so much, I can just, create the world to fit the narrative and the themes that I want to tell. But as soon as you're going into an established world, you, you're kind of very much boxed into what's already being created and you need to do something unique and fresh, but at the same time, respectful to the past. So I would never say no, but I would definitely go into it with my, wife, my eyes wide open and uh, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be a nerve wracking experience. But, you know, I'm always up for that. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, great, it's a great way to explore. And sometimes constraints, you know, breed the most... Um, exciting pieces of work because you feel like you don't you can't just do anything so the thing that you do ends up becoming extra special so yeah well, i wanted to switch gears and ask you about your your film background and your film company the printing um especially junior because that's really interesting to me where you're focusing more on animated projects for kids there's you know tell me about that part of your life what do you have going on yeah this is it's, it's been great i think we've we've we're about 12 years old now i think 13 years old, now 2022. Um, and so we are teenagers now officially as, as a company. And it, it's, it's, it's been great. It's been a really, really great journey. And I think we're doing some really exciting projects with a whole lot of international studios and which was always our goal, you know, to do stuff out of South Africa that was kind of big globally focused, but very true to 
uh, what like like land of the living gods is. It's something that I think is in a genre that can travel all over the world and anyone can enjoy it, but it's so specific to here. That's always what we wanted to do. Um, and so we've been having a lot of success on the live action side and I've always loved animation, hence my love for Akira and all of that. Um, and so about seven years ago, I established the kids side or the animation side of our business. Um, and it's doing really, really well. You know, we have, we have projects in, in development across multiple studios and in production, um, you know, at Disney, Netflix, and uh, yeah, a couple of the big places. Um, so I think we'll start hitting screens in a year or two because animation takes forever, you know, um, but, but pretty soon you'll be able to watch one of our productions. Um, I'm currently directing uh, an animated short film for Disney Plus, which is uh, part of an Afrofuturism anthology series. So it's really, really cool. Um, and I'm enjoying the process so much. My first time directing, but it's been a real pleasure and I'm excited about what we are cooking. Um, and yeah, I guess my, my main goal with the kids side of the business was to really do that, to kind of create content for kids uh, around the world. They can kind of see South African culture, South African characters, black characters in really premium high-end content that are ambitious and fun and that they can want to role play as and do all of those cool things that they've traditionally not been able to do with, with characters from, from here. So that was always the goal. And to just, you know, from, from a young mind, from a young, from, uh, you know, talking to kids from a very young age and starting to let them see that the world is kind of bigger than what TV presents, you know, like for, for me growing up, you know, I was watching He-Man and, uh, you know, Ninja Turtles and it's like, I love those shows, but I never saw myself in them. And, just to create a world where people can see that, okay, it's, 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 it's broader than just specific groups of people and everybody can, everybody can see themselves as the next Ben 10 or whatever, you know, that's really what I wanted to contribute and hopefully what we will be able to do in the future, you know. Do you feel like representation in comics is moving in the right direction anyway? Because I mean, I've been in it in, I guess, since the mid eighties, right? And it looks, the landscape looks very, very different now thankfully. Um, are we getting there? I think so, definitely. I mean, yeah, it's undeniable. I, I, it's across the board. I mean, I think even with the stuff that I'm doing on the animation side, it's definitely like, you know, I think the, the, the excitement that people have now for telling stories from non-traditional uh, voices has never been higher. I think comic books is an interesting one because it's a medium that relies on, at least the main part of comic books, relies on the history of the characters, you know. So the, the most popular characters are the ones with the longest history. And I think it's it's definitely challenging for the main for the big companies to find a way to kind of create diversity within the cast when you know there is a legacy of just having one type of superhero and now you're trying to bring in different voices in a way that is respectful to the fans and the, the people who love these characters, but at the same time that doesn't just leave everything the way that it was. But I think for us in the more independent comic book space uh, with stuff like Land of the Living Gods is super exciting because you know you're just able to create new characters and new worlds that fit in and change the landscape of the overall landscape of what kind of characters you come to expect from comic books. Um, but it's, I think it's undeniable, um, the kind of change that's happened, particularly in the last 10 years, I think, um, in terms of people being able to see a diverse group of people in the books that they read, which is, which is exciting. I mean, and I know it, 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 it's, 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 it's change, moments of transition are always painful and good. And I think we do see some of the pain sometimes and we see some of the anger that comes, but that's all, I think, part of a process. It's a healthy thing. And at the end of it, I think we'll be better for it, you know. Sure. What are you, what are you seeing that's right now, you know, in, in that landscape? Could be film, could be comic books, could be whatever. You know, what's inspiring you? You've got the background, you've got He-Man, you've got Akira, but what do you like now? Sorry, Byron, I don't know if you can hear me, but I can't hear you. 
So oh, I'm sorry. Can, can you hear me now? Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. So I was just asking, you know, what are you seeing that's inspiring you now? You know, you had Akira in the past, you saw He-Man as, you know, as a kid. So what are you seeing out there that you love, you know, that you're like, okay, this is inspirational? Yeah, I mean, I think that immediately my mind goes to is into the side of this. Um, I think I remember, I remember sitting and watching that film and just being blown away. And, um, you know, for so long, I kind of felt, I was feeling some of that frustration of being constrained in terms of what type of content you can create because, you know, especially in the kid space, there's all these predetermined boxes in terms of age range and this is for boys, those are for girls. And is this a comedy or is it action? It's like there's so many boxes that people put you in. And once you bleed out of those boxes, it becomes way more difficult to get your show picked up. Um, and when I watched Spider-Verse, I was like, man, this is just its own thing. You know, it's like, it's, it's not playing inside any of these boxes that we're used to seeing. I mean, and that's be, before you even get to the fact that it's like, you know, the, the lead character, like his background and who he is, is like not the kind of thing that we see in that kind of film. So I, I remember specifically after watching that, I was just like, I need to just rewire the way that I've been thinking about this content thing and just be less um, deliberate about trying to create something that's going to fit in the box and just be like, this is a thing that I want to do. This is a story that I want to tell. And I'm just going to tell it because that's how you end up with into the Spider-Verse kind of film. You know, it's when you're taking those risks and you're just like, whatever, I just want to do the thing. It's never been done or it's unconventional, whatever. It's what I want to do. Um, so that I would definitely mark as a big, big inspiration for me because it really, and it's, you know, it's in the animated medium and it's just everything about it was just like, man, that is a gold standard for me, you know? And then more recently, you know, there's stuff like Arcane that's come out that I, I watch that and I'm like, this is like, as far as craft of what we do, it's like untouchable across the board. You look at like the quality of the animation and the quality of the direction and the quality of the script and the voice acting. It's like everything was done with such love and purpose that it's like, this is, this is mind blowing, you know? So there's, there's things that come out like, you know, every now and then that I watch and I'm just like, I also have to give a shout out to Jude, which is another thing that I just watched you know, uh, recently where I was just like, this is like, for me in the sci-fi space, this is exactly it, you know? So yeah, yeah, every now and then I watch something that really gets me excited and that it makes me just want to like, you know, get to my keyboard and start writing again, which is great. <laughs> well, will we see Land of the Living Gods in an animated format later, possibly? Yeah, I hope so. You know, I mean, you know, it's, it's early days, uh, just issue one out. But um, I think the response to the first issue has been really good. Uh, so we are starting to have some early conversations. Uh, we'll see, you know, hopefully, hopefully one of these days I'll be chatting to you again and I'll be telling you that uh, we just got picked up by whatever platform and look out for it in 2025. <laughs> I certainly hope so. I love the book. How many issues are there planned in the arc? Five. Okay. In, in this arc, yeah. So, you know, if all goes well, hopefully we'll continue beyond that. Um, it's a big wall. It's one that I can see running for a while. But yeah, the first arc is kind of like a self-contained uh, jump-off point that, that kind of sets our heroes off on the, the real kind of big journey, you know? So I've, I've, I've kind of structured it in a way that it can have, similar to uh, manga, you know, where you can have nice, chunky arcs that are fulfilling in themselves, but are part of a bigger narrative and are building towards something incredible. Okay. Well, my last question, hyenas are my favorite animal. So how did they end up in the story? <laughs> I love hyenas as well. I, I feel like they're like such strange animals. And they, I, just, I just don't feel like they get the respect they deserve, you know? <laughs> so, and, and this is like these really iconic images of these guys in Nigeria that have, they like have these tame hyenas and they like walk around the streets with them. And I'm sure you've seen it, but they're yeah. like quite like, yeah. yeah. And those, those images are always like so like punk. 
you know, and like, I feel like in a world like Land of the Living Gods, it's like, these guys feel like they walked off of the page. Um, so yeah, I, and I find hyenas popping up in a lot of the things that I do. Um, in at least three projects that I'm working on, there's a hyena somewhere, <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe it's my spirit animal. <laughs> Maybe, you've guaranteed that I'll watch it if you put hyenas in it, so. <laughs> yeah, hyenas are dope. And very, very smart, and actually, uh, you know, they get a bad rep because they, they're sneaky, but they also are actually quite loving. <laughs> Well, Isaac, it's been a pleasure getting a chance to talk to you today about Land of the Living Gods. Thanks you so much for chatting with me. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's been awesome. I always love talking about, you know, this, this world um, and the lady and all the things that are coming her way. So yeah, anytime. Well, I was hooked on the initial concept of the book from the jump. And after having read the first issue, I, I certainly believe there's way more to this project than just a, that your average run-the-mill dystopian, you know, tale. So I love it. Um, everybody who's listening, please check it out at the local comic book shop or online. Issue one's out already. Um, on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti, this is Byron O'Neill. Thanks for listening and take care, everybody. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing and, more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Galvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg, but their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment, action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one. All you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the Department of Metahuman Affairs or DMA and check it out right now. 